when we met last, we were on page 15. We're looking at MICA. And since it has been two weeks, I'm going to review a few things. Remember, we looked at title and authorship. The name MICA is an abbreviated form for Mikaya. Uh, it means who is like the Lord, who is like Yahweh, that's his name in Hebrew. Who is like Yahweh? We really don't know much about him, as I pointed out. Uh, we do know that he was from Morsheth, uh, and that was located in the area known as Gath in the Sheplos, Sheplos of North. It's the lowlands. It's, it's hot. Uh, I know because we've been there. So, today it's usually uh, correlated with Tel El Jediadah. It is approximately 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem and about 20 miles west of the Mediterranean coast and approximately 12 miles northeast of the ancient city of Lachish. So, you know, it's close to Jerusalem. I guess that's the thing we can handle. We're all familiar with Jerusalem. This is, you know, fairly close. I mean, what's 25 miles? Well, if you're on a camel, that is quite a distance. But today, the way it is set up in Israel, that's a short drive. Uh, I think in our country, we could get there in less than a half hour. In fact, the way my sons drive, they can make it in 15 minutes. Uh, and Bob's the same way. Ken's probably the same way. I am. I admit it. <laughs> well, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, I do both. Both my sons, I mean, they drive fast. The one can get away with it. The other has to be careful because he can't get away with it. But he has used his brother's name when he's been pulled over before. So it always helps when your brother's a cop. So... I may have to call upon that someday. Using my passengers to read it. There you are. But the last time my wife was in Arizona, she was going to pick up Bob and Missy. They'd been on a Caribbean cruise, and so she was there watching our grandchildren for, I think it was five, six days at that point. And so she's on that force on an interstate. There's eight lanes, and so she's going south, and, it, and it's in the evening, and it all kind of boils down to one lane. And so she didn't really see it, so she just cut into the far left lane, and a cop pulled her over. And she just said, you know, my son's, he's a Scottsdale police officer. I'm going to pick him up, and I don't want to be late. So the guy just gave her a warning, and you know, Bob said, he shouldn't have pulled her over for that, so he's going to check with some guys to know him. So, I mean, that's the good thing about cops. <laughs> they got a fraternity there, and when somebody steps out of line, somebody will say something. So, you know, in a Christian way, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, today this would be a relatively short distance. Uh, remember last time we were... We were noticing that most conservatives state the writing that spoke about 735 to 710 B.C. 
And I think the only way we can really connect with that is just remember it's about 700 years before Christ. Uh, and so we left, we were ready to start the message, and that's where we're going to start tonight. So let me go through this. Judah will be judged for disobeying the Lord's covenant. Now, let me pause there and correlate that with a few texts. Uh, first of all, we need to recognize that Israel or the northern kingdom, it gets judged before Judah. Judah is going to be uh, progressively judged. I'm sorry, Israel is going to be progressively judged so that eventually it will be eliminated as a nation. Uh, that's about 722 B.C. when uh, when their capitals ruined. Judah doesn't fall for more than 100 years later. It's 586 B.C. So there's a difference. Judah was the pure of the two nations. They, in some sense, worship Yahweh. Now, their problems come in is because idolatry does creep in. But Israel was given over to idolatry ever since it first formed. So, they had to come first. So, let's look at a passage here in chapter 1, 3 to 7. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. Now, the significance of the high places is that's often where idolatry went on. And so sometimes the code name for a worship place on a high place is just a high place. So it's fortuitous that Micah refers to that because this is the place where idolatry is practiced. So the Lord is going to come down from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places on the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart. Like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. That refers to the northern kingdom. So this this judgment is going to come upon them because of the sins that started with the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? Samaria was their capital. It was the apex for idolatrous practices. He says, what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? So they're both mountainous areas, but uh, it is implying that idolatry has come to Judah. So this first part tells us about the northern kingdom. But notice also in verses 8 to 9, notice how Judah is going to be affected. So the northern kingdom has ten tribes. The southern kingdom has two tribes. Judah is the key tribe. So it becomes known as Judah. And so here, God says in verse 8, because of this, I will weep and wail, 
I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl, for her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. So notice, this wound, it's come from somewhere else to Judah. The fact that he's describing Israel in the first part, it's, it's really the wound of Israel. Their idolatrous practices has now crept down into Judah. So that's what he's referring to. And further what he's saying, it has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And then he has this poem here. Uh, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, and Beth, Ophrah, roll in the dust. In Hebrew there's a play on the words. It's hard to describe in English, but if you're reading Hebrew, you can see the, uh, the alliteration, the rhyme, the similar spelling of the terms. But this is all a poem that describes the weeping and mourning for Judah. And uh, it, it goes down, go down to uh, verse uh, 16. After going through his poetry describing the judgment that's going to come on, on Judah or the southern kingdom, he says, Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Now, when he says make yourself as bald, usually when you went through the ritual of uh, mourning, you would shave your head bald. Now, obviously, you know, not everybody could shave their head bald. That's, I mean, Elijah, or I'm sorry, Elisha. Remember how those children were mocking him because he was bald-headed? And these two bears go out and they eat up the, the kids. Oh, you don't want to mess with the prophet. I like to say you don't want to mess with somebody who's bald headed. Or <laughs> <laughs> those bears will eat you up. <laughs> but just that won't happen. I don't want to say that. <laughs> so, the first chapter is describing how the idolatry affected the northern kingdom. Samaria is capital. They will be judged. Look back after verses 3 to 5. Look how he describes what's going to happen. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones, by which stones were symbols used in idolatrous practice into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. These are gifts to the false temples. Uh, I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of, the prost of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Now, I don't want to go into the details. It's, uh, it's pretty gory. In most seminary classes, I've got quotes that I read. And, you know, one of the side things that was involved when I did my doctoral work is you have to study ancient Near Eastern mythology texts 
and they get pretty, pretty vivid. But the reason God uses the imagery of a prostitute, that's what was involved in this idolatrous worship. I mean, idolatry is bad, but generally speaking, these were fertility cults. Uh, people in the ancient Near Eastern religions, they became what they would call Chalma. It's a, it's a word that's cognate with our word in Hebrew for virgin, Chalma. But the difference is, is that name's applied to somebody who's defiled themselves in the name of a god or goddesses. The green pole, the Asherah, that's the female goddess, of, it represents the female goddess of fertility, and the stone's the male god. So this was just a base system. I mean, it just, it, it was immoral to the very nth degree. And by the way, we're, in our country, we're all set about homosexuality, and we should be. But that was a way of life in the ancient years. So you became pure by defiling yourself, and that can include homosexual behavior. So it was a vow, pagan place. You know, about like San Francisco, probably every city around the United, every major city around the United States. So, uh, unfortunately, we haven't done very much to curb it. In fact, you know, that's an issue that you wonder future politics. Will they be able to be really for marriage between a husband and wife? Because with this group that's grown up through the public schools, it's something they've been taught. So, I, you know, our, our election, what it does show, this is the end result of the public educational system. Now, I'm not saying all public schools are like that, but generally that's, that's the case. And we see their leftist views are what. They were taught. Uh, a friend of mine, he and I used to go to Starbucks in Dearborn, one on Michigan Avenue. Uh, one of the Dauberton boys, uh, Phil Dauberton, they live across the street from us. He works at Inner City. He had four boys. We had a daughter and two boys. His older boys, well, and even Jason and Kyle hung around with him a lot. And my two sons, they would just hang out together and they always like to wrestle and fight and stuff like that. And so anyway, their their second son, he's going he went to seminary. And so he got a job working at Starbucks. And by the way, he's in Chicago now, he's a regional manager for Starbucks, so Ryan has really risen up in the system. But anyway, he, he became a master barista when he was over there. But so my friend and I we'd go in Sometimes Ryan would talk with us. And, you know, I'd say, you know, this guy looks a little shaky here. And he says, he is. And he said, see that guy who's making that person's coffee? He can go either way. <laughs> and he said, most of the people at Starbucks are like that. Now, that's, at least that was the case with the, with the Dearborn Starbucks. And I remember we were talking to him about it, and he says, 
or we said to him, I guess we shouldn't be surprised because this is the end result of public education. I think it was an old theologian, Machen. He predicted when the public school got started, what was it, the early 1900s? He predicted that this would be the ruination of our nation. Well, he never claimed to be a prophet, but may I say, he understood how those things worked. And so, I'm not surprised. Uh, some of our seminary students are surprised. And I told them, you know, I've always thought the United States is, is center-left. I just thought, oh, well, I shouldn't say that. I just thought Obama didn't have much to run on. But I was wrong. So I see that, which gives us the opportunity to salt and light because it's going to be needed more than ever because we will see things turn. And eventually, uh, we'll go the way of Europe and, you know, uh, just be the same way. It's just a matter of time. But I, I did my best to fight, and I'm still doing my best. And I thank God for my children. They're doing their best, too. Uh, yeah, my youngest son, he said he may have to file for bankruptcy if this, if this increased tax burden goes through. Uh, and my youngest son is really well off. He and his wife make over 250000 I know they do that because when Obama became president, their, their salary got cut in half because of taxes. So he never tells me what he makes. But I know what the starting figure is. <laughs> and uh, the taxation on them is just so high. Now, I would not call them a wealthy family. Uh, I could live off, you know what they brought home, 125000 I could live on that. <laughs> but when, you're, when you have to socialize with the people they do, they spend big bucks. But he says, they're even taking more now. Well, that's what happens. So what we can do, well, we just submit to the sovereignty of God. God knew exactly what he was doing. This is for your good, this is for my good. We may struggle, but still for our good. But yet when I see the nations, we're going the way of Israel. But there's one difference between our nation and Israel. Israel was God's chosen nation. So they get judged. You have to admit, Israel's been judged very severely. When you look what's happened to them over time, the various dispersions, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen to them in the future. I mean, they've got the whole Middle East against them. Uh, not you know, they're for a small country, they're pretty powerful. But uh, I don't know. If they if they are dispersed again, I can conceive of that. There people often assume that they're back in in Israel because the Lord's gonna return. And by the way, he is gonna return. But he didn't need to have them come back to Israel to return. So I can't conceive of them being dispersed again. I mean, I hope not. But the one thing I can predict, that when it's all said and done, 
at the end of the tribulation period, Israel will be there. I doubt that the U.S. will be there. You know, it's and the reason why I'm predicting that is because the Bible says it. So I don't have hope for the nation. I've got hope for Israel, but they're still an unbelieving nation, and I don't think everything that they do is what I consider right. I think our treaty violations with them that shows we're unethical, and we'll be just for that. I mean. We'll be just for treating any people we have uh, agreements with. We have ethical obligations. I don't care whether it's Jews, it's the United Kingdom. We have to be faithful to those. So in the end, there are judgments coming. But for us, it's not as bad for the Jews. What they go through is just hard stuff. So can I say this is the beginning of this? Now, let me describe briefly here with what's being described here in chapter 1. When he's talking in verse 16 about shaving your heads, uh, he's talking about uh, Judah. This is going to come to them. In fact, this, this section here, this is fulfilled in about 701 B.C. What will happen is the nation of the northern kingdom, Israel, that's eliminated as a nation at 722 B.C. Now what happens after that is that Assyria is going to be a strong force. They will come after the southern kingdom, Judah. And so what happens in uh, 712 B.C.? The Assyrian army, it comes in and takes the Shephla. That's why all the mourning here is located with cities in the Shephla, because they're going to suffer this. So that comes through, and yet there's a great thing that happens with this. In fact, hold on here. Let's just turn to Isaiah for a minute. Secretary 
and Joah son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, This is what the, the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? I should pause here. Hezekiah was a believer. And he does turn to the Lord. But in the midst of that, he's going to experience the ravages that they had coming to them for the idolatry. Now, Hezekiah tries to clean it up. And he does a pretty good job. Not an absolute job, but pretty good. So here, uh, the king of Assyria has come down. He says, on what, are your, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on him. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. So the Assyrians, they have been in, in many skirmishes with the Egyptians, and the Assyrians at this point, they have the upper hand over the Egyptians. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? Now, this is to Hezekiah's credit. Those high places and altars, those were false places of worship. And the king of Assyria is saying, now this foolish king, he destroyed the worship places. But see, Hezekiah was right to do that. But, you know, this is a pagan king, and he's saying their gods were lesser than our gods. That's all he's saying. Uh, and he continues, Isn't he the one whose high place and altars Hezekiah removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You must worship before this altar. That's the one in Jerusalem. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. And uh, he goes on. Uh, I could read it all, but I think I'll refuse to do it. But I want you to notice they go through all this. Uh, in fact, I won't read it, but you can notice 12 and 13. Uh, they get pretty crude here in talking to these people. You're gonna, you're gonna have to do some things you could never think of. So anyway, the people of Jerusalem, the Assyrian king's forces, they surround them. He's got over, I think he's got about 185,000 men. And they're around him. Hezekiah goes to the Lord. Now, notice chapter 37. When Hezekiah heard this, that is, what the commander of the Assyrian king said, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace of minister, administrators, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is, what I, I, this is what Hezekiah says, this is the day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to deliver them. 
It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. So when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Well, that's not a very happy prospect. Uh, let's drop down a number of verses here. Verse 15, And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian king have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods. Now, he's, he's uh, broadening out from just Judah, but they did it to the whole area. So this was a menacing army. Uh, and he says, They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hands so that all of the kings on the earth may you alone, O Lord our God. Now, that's quite a prayer. He's concerned about God's glory. And he's concerned because they blaspheme the name of the living God. Well, notice what God does here. Drop down to verse 35. God says, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people, when the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Now, people, that was a great victory. So the angel of the Lord goes and he strikes them, 185,000 men. And so the king of Assyria, he puts his tail between his legs and goes back home. Now, what's very interesting is this, is that uh, there are ancient Near Eastern texts. They're, they're not Jewish texts. They're texts of pagans. And so scribes in these pagan countries, you don't write bad about the king. The king was like a Hitler. He had absolute power. You wrote bad things about him, you got killed. And so they're very careful in how they state things. But in this one Assyrian text, it describes how uh, Sennacherib's armies went down, they overran 46 cities, and they had Hezekiah caved in like a bird. Now they describe how they destroyed the cities. 
But they get to Jerusalem, and they said he had Hezekiah caged in like a bird. It harmonizes beautifully. His messengers were calling out to the people. What they announced there in verses 12 and 13 was to dishearten the people. And yet, Hezekiah prays, and then God delivers. I would suggest to you people, this is one of the great miracles in the Bible, where this pagan people, they went too far. But thank God, they had a godly king, and he did try to clean the place up. In fact, I think Hezekiah did one of the best jobs of trying to root out the idolatry, but it wasn't completely done, but he, he did very well. And he's commended for that. So a godly king, submitting and praying to a sovereign living God, gets delivered. Well, Mike is referring to the same events here in Micah 1. Uh, sorry to take so long on that, but I think the details there are, are very interesting. So the passage in Isaiah is describing some of the same things that are being predicted in Micah 1 how they're going to go through the Shephelah, how God's going to deliver them. Well, let's turn back to Micah then. So we looked at the first part. Judah will be judged for disobeying the Lord's covenant. Uh, yet, the covenant-keeping God will establish his ideal king and kingdom to bring salvation to his nation. And Micah, let's turn over to chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. God promises a future ruler in the line of David. Verse 1, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from a bold from ancient times. By the way, the verse is referring to that this future king will be in the line of King David. And his days, uh, the king's days of origin, Jesus, goes back to the early days of Jesse and David. He's got the right family line. And yet, this ruler will not just be in the line of David. He will. But he's more than that. He's the God-man. And because he's got that, he's, Christ is a unique person because he's both God and man without fusion or confusion. That's the way it says in one of the early church councils because sometimes people mix up Christ with the man, Jesus. So you've got God with man. But there's no fusion or confusion. It's perfectly harmonized. By the way, you know why the virgin birth is a necessity? Well, you need a man. You've got to have the right family line. But you've also got God. And so what happens is 
the Holy Spirit impregnates Mary. And what's in her womb is, in one hand, a newborn child, but in the other hand, in the Logos, in the person of Christ, uh, you have somebody who was never born because he's very God. So, the virgin birth of theological necessity, though, because, you see, we have this perfect harmony of God and man. And further, with the virgin birth, God prevents a brand new person coming into existence. See, any brand new person who comes into existence is a combination of the mother and the dad. And it's through this mutual combination that the sin nature is passed on. With Christ, although the man, Jesus, is new, God is not. So this is not a result of the normal procreation process. And therefore, we have to have the virgin birth to bypass the sin nature. If Christ had a sin nature, he could not be the God-man. So the virgin birth is really a, just a wonderful doctrine that you know, historic Christianity is adhered to. And it's a very important doctrine because we have somebody who is both man and God. And because he's also God, he does not have a sin nature. And he can be our Savior. So that's the key. But this passage is pointing to that very thing. So what a marvelous thing. And you know, hopefully as Christmas comes near, we'll think about this. And I know we used to read our children a Christmas story and stuff like that each Christmas, and I think it was a good tradition. Uh, this year we'll be in Arizona with, with my middle child, Bob, and his wife. And like last year, we'll celebrate Christmas, and they have similar traditions. Uh, except last year we went to church also. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, it was that was just neat to be around because this is the first time I'm, we're usually with Amy and Mark. But Bob's more chip off the old block theologically. And so it was just, I mean, it was really one of the best Christmases I've ever had to see them raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so these little traditions that they have, they do them for purposes because they're kind of inculcate things in their family. Now my daughter, they do something similar, but uh, it's not just, I mean, Mark's a very good man, hardest worker I know, but he's not the same as my son. <laughs> Bob's got an MDiv from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, but no, I have a great son at all, quite frankly. Uh, I can honestly say, well, both my sons are hard workers. My son is equally a hard worker. I don't see many people that work like he does. But anyway, I ponder all that because we've used this passage many times during the Christmas season. Well, anyway, we need to look at one other thing here. Look at chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. Notice how in the end Israel will rise. 
do not gloat over me, my enemy. Now, God's predicting their future. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. Now, the right's referring to their relationship with God. They are his covenant people. Uh, he will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. And that day will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. Even from Egypt to the Euphrates, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. By the way, there, there will be redeemed people in Assyria and Egypt in that future kingdom. They will worship. So this is alluding to... Uh, now, that hasn't arrived yet, but it will arrive. We're just waiting at this point. So anyway, that's Micah. So Micah has stuff related to his days, but he also looks forward to the future. Micah 5, he looks forward to the birth of the Messiah. Chapter 7 looks for that millennial kingdom, um, which is yet to come. Okay, well, that's Micah. Now, do you have any questions on that? Unfortunately, this is one of the books, in fact, most of these books I've been having Hebrew refugees classes on. So at this point, I may know a little too much for our good. <laughs> like I tell my Hebrew pastor, I was the best Hebrew teacher I'll ever be the first year I taught Hebrew because I don't know as much as, I didn't know as much then as I know now. But, I, I mean, since I had a THC in Hebrew, Old Testament languages and literature at that point, you know, I had had Ugaritic and hieroglyphics and all these Semitic languages. And, you know, it, it was fresh. But you're so nervous when you first go through. All these things don't click. Now, years three, four, and five, a lot of that just come back to there. Now that I've got older, I've cut down on that just because I don't know if they can always handle it. But uh, anyway, this is one of my favorite books, and for good reason. Okay, we're going to move on to names, if there's no questions. Names another class that I have a Hebrew exegesis class on. So, this is Nineveh, about 100 years after they had been delivered. And so it's a little bit more of a distressing story. As with many other Old Testament books with the title and authorship here, the superscription of this book denotes its author, Nahum the Elokshite. This is the only information in the canon that we have concerning the prophet. This book was probably written somewhere between 668 to 654 B.C. So notice, this comes after Micah. As far as the date and the setting, the date of the book is placed, to be placed somewhere between the fall of Naaman, that's Thebes in Egypt, in 663 B.C., and the fall of Nineveh in 612 B.C. So essentially, 
a middle point found about 650 BC. It's not quite narrow, but it's a rounded off number. Uh, and I point out about centuries past here since the days of, uh, of Jonas and above. So let's look at the message here. The book of Nahum is a prophetic oracle announcing that the sovereign Lord would destroy the capital of the Assyrian nation. Let's look at uh, Nahum chapter 1. Let's look at verses 2 to 6. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Look over to chapter 2. He gives some more detail here. Notice an attacker advances against Judah. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves and marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. Now this is a parenthetical remark. It reminds Israel that God will restore their splendor. So this is meant to be an encouragement to Israel. But it should be an encouragement to Israel because God's going to destroy their enemies, the Ninevites. And he goes on and he describes how he's going to restore, how he's up, how the Assyrians would come against them, or I'm sorry, how the enemies would come against Nineveh. The shields of the soldiers are red, the warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal and the chariot flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of the pine are brandished. What he does is he describes how Nineveh is going to fall, and even how the waters will collapse the walls around the city. Which, by the way, that is what happened. We've got historical records outside the Bible that describe it to a T. So, the Bible is giving us historical truth, and the actual history we see in these ancient Near Eastern texts. That confirms it, but it doesn't prove it. You know, the Bible would write even if we didn't have all these archaeology discoveries. But we do, and I thank God for them. But I wouldn't believe it even without them. So, at least I'd like to think I believe, would have believed it without them. 
So he describes here how the Medes, the Babylonians, they're going to come up and they're going to be a fierce army. And they're going to march right up to Nineveh. There's going to be a storm. It's going to break their water gates. Uh, they had five city gates that were going to be broken open. They had massive walls in the ancient areas to protect the city. The great cities always had these large walls about it. And they would have a water system throughout it. Nineveh did. And so what happens is great storm comes. Now the enemy are coming in through some of these gates. But what happens is the water backs up and <coughs> breaks some of the dams and it helps tear down the walls and the enemy comes in and they destroy it. Well that's what happens when you mess with the enemy with the, for those who are the enemy of God. God does take care of them. Now this is a hundred years later. But it does seem to me that God always does that. You know, it's you know the thing we sometimes forget is that God is still God of wrath. He still is holy. He still is just. And I thank God for His mercy. I mean, because it's His mercy that saved us. But still, in the end, God is a God of justice. So you're either in Christ and the justice has been satisfied. Or you're outside of Christ, but justice is satisfied for all eternity. And God will be vindicated, will be satisfied with that judgment on him. It reminds me of a national treasure. You all probably saw that movie. Uh, remember the, who was it? CIA, FBI. So you all haven't seen National Treasure? Well, I'll skip that then. <laughs> It's a great moment. <laughs> uh, no, that's with uh, oh, the Elvis one of the uh, he married Elvis's daughter. They got divorced this Oh, Cage, Nicholas Cage. Yeah, Nicholas Cage. He's uh, very good at. Uh, but anyway, we liked it. But the punchline when everything's said and done, uh, I think it's an FBI agent. <coughs> the FBI. Because then somebody's got to go to jail. Well, my analogy was to point out that somebody's got to pay. <laughs> for us as believers, Christ paid the price. But for unbelievers, they don't have that. And so they will have to suffer, and God will be satisfied with that. Okay, well, that's a good place to stop. Any questions? Well, we'll pick up next with the Habakkuk. I thought we had another week. But we're in good shape to finish up. Back to Seth and I, Haggai, Zachariah, Malachi, we can finish up with. So I think it should go that way. Okay, well, we'll see you all next week. Thank you.